Have you struggled with transitions in your life? I know I have. Join me today for a conversation with the powerful Sonia Alvarez Robinson, where we dig into life transitions, loss, love, and everything in between. Grab a box of tissues and let's dive in and get ready to be inspired. You're listening to the Girl Get Your Face Off a Bus Bench podcast, where we invite you to check your ego at the app, grab a cup of coffee, and get ready to dive into all things real estate marketing social media, friendship, hardship, love, money mindset, and all the things that celebrate you as a badass boss babe. We're here to encourage you, show up for you, give you a loving kick in the pants when you need it most, and be your soft place to land on the hardest of days. So pull up a seat at our table and get ready to be inspired and start living your best life by design. Welcome to the Girl Get Your Face Off a Bus Bench podcast. We are so excited you're here. Okay, girls, let's dive in. This is Beth, and this is my first interview episode. Um, So thanks for being here today. I have a really special friend, Sonia Alvarez Robinson. Uh, She and I were neighbors back in the day. We both lived in Minneapolis. I think when I was thinking back, I met you 18, 19-ish years ago. So, I mean, we've known each other a long time. We had had a really fun neighborhood back in the day. I think pretty much everybody that we knew has all left the neighborhood. You've moved to sunnier, warmer places, uh, and I just moved across town. But I'm so glad that we've stayed friends for all these years. Yeah, what a journey it's been. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, Sonia, uh, so Sonia Alvarez Robinson. I just said Sonia, so let's just say your official name, Sonia Alvarez Robinson. Uh, would you introduce yourself so our listeners can learn a little bit more about you? Sure. Um, so I'll start first by just talking a little bit about my professional identity. So many people call me Dr. Alvarez Robinson. Uh, I am a, a PhD in human and organizational systems. Uh, and what that means is that my expertise is really in the area of helping people be their best every day at work. Uh, and so I wear three professional hats. So one of them is I'm the executive director for uh, internal consulting group at a major research university, uh, one of the top rated research universities in the world. Um, And I have the ability in, in that role to help executive leaders make good decisions, but also to help people in the organization to navigate change. As we continue to improve and look for ways to get better, my job is to really hold people through that process, help them understand it, get comfortable with it, but also to create a culture where people can be their best every day. Um, The other hat that I wear is I'm also a professor at that same university, and I teach a course called Building Personal and Organizational Resilience overcoming acute shocks and chronic stressors. And in that course, I teach college students who are in a very rigorous, intense environment to help them navigate and manage the stress that's associated with that, changes in their life, uncertainty, things that happen, adversity. Um, And that's been a really amazing experience, especially over the last year. 
as all of us have gone through a tremendous amount of uncertainty and change and fear. And so my students have come back and said they're just so grateful that they had the chance to develop these skills so that they could get through the last year. And then my third professional role is uh, as a coach. I'm a life coach and I specialize in helping people navigate transitions, whether it's marriage or divorce or new child or becoming an empty nester or job loss or you know feeling like they need a career change. And so uh, I have the opportunity to work one-on-one with people, but I also do group retreats. And so we've got two planned uh, for the late summer and early fall, small group experiences for people to really kind of get connected to where they want to go next and how they can live their best life. So that's kind of my professional identity, but I think about identity as like three parts, what we do, what we have, and who we are. And I think that what I do is part of who I am, but I think more than anything, uh, who I am is a survivor and a thriver, you know, surviving things like uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, homelessness, job loss, widowhood, and most recently a spinal injury um, that has left me living with chronic pain. Um, And so you know, we are not who, uh, we're not the experiences that we have, but we are absolutely who we become by what we learn through those things, you know? And, and so I think the test of, of who we are as people is really about how we respond to the circumstances in our life and particularly those things that are so out of our control. Uh, it, it's a test of our character and it builds who we are. So that's who I am. And I'm really proud of you. I'm just super excited yeah. for you and congratulations <laughs> on the show because, you know, when you and I first met, I think I was really kind of in this major transition. It was almost like the butterfly coming out of the cocoon. I had had been through so much darkness and felt so enclosed in the, 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 the adversity of my life. And when I met you, I just, like my wings were, were opening up and I was beginning to fly. And, you know, so much has happened since then, almost 20 years ago. I can't believe it, but um, it's been great to watch I know. you. When I read your bio and yeah, well, it's been fun to watch you too. Like that's been amazing. Um, when I read your bio, I'm like, you are one of the most awesomely educated women that that's in my life. And I'm like, I knew that you were doing amazing things, but when I actually read it on paper. I'm like, am I even qualified to be in the same room with this amazing woman? <laughs> like, you're just so, I, I love that you set goals for yourself and you just go gangbusters. And you've always been like that since I've met you. You were probably like that long before I met you. And it's, It's so, so fun to see. It's so inspiring. You know, it's interesting when people ask me about the the education. So I have four college degrees, right? I got my bachelor's degree. It took me seven years to finish my bachelor's because I was a single mom. I could only do a couple classes at a time. I was working full time and running my own business on the side, taking care of these two kids by myself. 
So it took a long time, but I got there. And then I decided I was going to get my master's. And then I got a second master's. And then I just decided I, I didn't actually even think I was going to get a PhD until I lost my job and I was at a crossroads. And I was like, holy smokes, what am I going to do with my life right now? Like I, I have put so much into my career. And then all of a sudden they just pulled the rug out from underneath me because of some political stuff. I was like, what am I going to do next? And one of my mentors was like, why don't you just go get your PhD? And so I was like, oh, okay, that's what I'll do. And it took, it took me actually another seven years to get my PhD. Like I was literally a, a student and working and a mom for over 14 years to, you know, to do that. Most of the time I've known you. <laughs> yes, I know. And then when I finished my, <laughs> when I defended my, my dissertation, you know, I've been working on, on my PhD and working full time. And then um, my husband got really sick. I got married in 2000 and, you know, you, you and I met when uh, Scott and I were really just newlywed. I'm, we met in 2002. Yeah, so we were we are, had only been married for a couple of years then. Um, we were just still getting to know each other. We became best friends. He was like, you know, the greatest balance that a woman could ever want. And especially somebody who, you know, for me being strong and independent. And, you know, he was also very strong and stubborn, but he brought this balance to my life that was so, so rich and so powerful. And then when he died, you know, the crazy thing is the, the last text that he sent on his phone was to his best friend, Henry, um, before he went into the hospital. I know. Right. And he he told Henry in the text, he said, when I get out of the, when I recover from the surgery, we're going to get together and celebrate because Sonia's finishing her PhD. I'm so looking forward to get my wife back. And that, when I read that, it just like brought me to tears because I didn't realize that he, even though he supported like every, everything that I did, there was a piece of him that felt like he was missing. Like he didn't have the attention from me that he felt he wanted you know, so he died and I was at it right at the end of my writing my final paper. Literally, I was at the hospital at his bedside cranking on this document, trying to finish writing this paper. He died on June 14th, 2013. And I defended my dissertation June 26th. We had his funeral on July 1st and then my graduation on July 19th, like right after that. Cause I knew that gives me, isn't that crazy? Like I knew that I had to finish that because all those years that he put up with and he would like give me a card every time I'd like finish a course, he'd give me a card that says, congratulations, keep going, baby. I know you can, you know, can do this. And it was just, and I have all of those, those love notes that he gave me over the years in a box now and when I when I feel alone now, yeah. I go back and I read back through those, you know, and it's just such a powerful lesson that you have to tell people. What a great memory! Yeah. You have to tell people that you love them while they're here, you know, and and never let a day go we by. Don't do it Ex- enough for right. sure. 
It gives you such a strong appreciation <laughs> for what you have. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I remember when I first moved into my neighborhood. I was remodeling my house. I think you were you were pregnant with Sage back then, right? Yep. He was he was born in 2002. Yeah. Yes, I was. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I bought my house in 2002. I was remodeling it like a maniac and I didn't really get to know any of the neighbors because I was just knee deep in sheetrock dust from, <laughs> you know, every single day. And I remember like that Christmas, I gave little like Christmas goodies out to all my neighbors, like my immediate neighbors just saying, oh, I'm so grateful to be in this neighborhood. You know, now that my projects are done, I hope like we can get to know each other. And I remember the next spring, so Sage was, you know, probably barely walking. He was probably, you know, nine months old or something like that. You had reached out and said, hey, do you want to have a happy hour? You're like, I have. And I said, sure, I've got tons of wine over here. Come on over. I'd love to get to know you. And you're like, I just went to the grocery store. I have a fresh thing of grapes. I remember you came over with a bowl of grapes and you and I had wine and grapes in my backyard. And I have never met anyone like you before. I, and it's, you know, it's, it's making me emotional. Um, I guess I feel like I grew up in a really sheltered, small almost like a small minded little world. I was went to a very uh, conservative Christian strict school. We didn't talk about diversity. Diversity wasn't praised. You didn't talk about civil rights. You didn't talk about slavery. They didn't even do sex education courses. So then I met you. And I remember the first thing that you said was, I don't I didn't know about you when you first moved into this neighborhood. You, you were this girl moving into the neighborhood and the first thing you did was you put up a big privacy fence and you told me in my mind that seemed like you were trying to blot the neighborhood out. And I'm like, no, I'm a single girl living in Minneapolis. I'm just trying to create some protection and, you know, safety for myself. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. Like the way that I viewed it and the way you viewed it were so different. Yeah. And you, you were working for the state of Minnesota and working for like diversity mm -hmm type things. And it was just so interesting how our friendship blossomed, you know, coming down to Atlanta and visiting you guys when Scott was still alive and having him give me the big tour of all of the Martin Luther King. And I just, I just feel like my friendship with you has completely opened my eyes to a whole different part of the world I never knew before. And I just want to thank you. For oh, that. you're welcome. You, one of the, one of the funnest things that I remember, first of all, let me say, I remember that first Christmas gift that you gave me so vividly. Now that you mention it, it was the, these chocolate mints and they were in a little tin. And I think it was either crate and barrel. It was something fancy. <laughs> and I was like, Ooh, this is a fancy girl. Uh, but when you and I and my friend Wendy went to Hilton Head for a weekend, and it just so happened that Tom Joyner, the fly jock, was hosting the Tom Joyner morning show at the Savannah Civic Center, and you went in there, and you were like the only white person in that whole arena. <laughs> Remember that? And it yes. was... It was like five o'clock. Were my eyes this big? <laughs> it was like five o'clock in the morning and everybody was dressed up like they were going to the nightclub because it was like this big party. And um, 
that was so fun. And uh-huh. we went and, uh, and that, you know, that to me was like a really powerful uh, experience to, to be able to show like, we can have completely different uh, backgrounds, lived experiences, points of view. But at the end of the day, we were, we're all women, you know, we had our ups and downs, our trials, our tribulations, our struggles. Yeah, the struggles are different because of the contextual reference, like, you know, like what we experience in our life. And, you know, one thing that I love about you and your openness is the willingness to recognize and accept the fact that there are people walking this earth who have it, you know, like their lived experience is shaped by societal ills, you know, racism and ageism and xenophobia. And I always say that our culture is not who we are as a result of where our ancestors came from, but our culture is who we are as a result of where we've been. And sometimes, you know, that our walk uh, in this life can be so shaped by, you know, the influences of others. And so I do a lot of work around resilience through othering. We're getting ready to do a workshop coming up uh, next month uh, where I work about this, because there's this thing that when you are... Uh, on the receiving end of othering, you know, for whatever reason, like people get othered all the time if they don't have enough money or when you're a kid, if you don't have the right physical shape or the right clothes or, you know, like human beings. There's a beautiful book by a woman named uh, Isabel Wilkerson and it's uh, the name of it is Cast. And she talks about the social order that we've constructed, not just in the United States, but around the world is that human beings, we want to put ourselves in a pecking order because nobody wants to be at the bottom. So, you know, in order to maintain your own, (laughs) preserve your own self-esteem, oftentimes we put others underneath us to make ourselves feel better about who we are. You know, I remember, so because my mom is white. That's a super interesting way to look at that. Right? So she she actually studied the caste system in India um, and looked at the parallels between what happened in India, where you have this huge disproportion of people living in dire poverty. And then you have the elite class and they're not to interact or mix uh, with each other, you know, and we set up similar social orders here, South Africa. Uh, in many parts of the world, if you think about anywhere that there's major conflict right now, it's all about the struggle for power. You know, mm-hmm. it is. Well, let's talk about transitional coaching. Okay, I want to know more about that. Like this year, I feel like everything in your life has just set you up perfectly for all of your transitional coaching, like you're, what you're doing now with your retreats. Tell us more about that. And like, what does that look like? Okay. Well, you're right. I mean, it is almost like divine order was established for me and I just needed to be open to receive it. And one thing that I've really, I'm very grateful for is the opportunities that have presented themselves and the doors that have just been there that I never even dreamed of or imagined 
would be there. So I spent most of my career uh, over the last 30 years helping people in organizations, whether it was in my role as a diversity director, I worked as an HR manager, I was a, a EEO counselor, mediator, really helping to solve problems and helping people navigate and negotiate adversity and challenge and change. And so I was really, you know, spending a lot of my career advising and coaching executive leaders. Uh, and when I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers as a global consultant, I was literally traveling around the world uh, advising CEOs and COOs when they're doing mergers or acquisitions and giving them advice about how do you create conditions for change to be successful and how do you lead people through change that's going to take them out of their comfort zone? And how do you um, it, keep people engaged when things are really tough? Uh, you know, like economic downturn impacts organizations, and sometimes they have to reduce the size of their workforce. I was there helping coach people who were surviving in those environments, like their coworkers, maybe their best friend got laid off and they didn't you know, or helping people who got laid off figure out like, you know, okay, how can this be a blessing to my life? That's almost impossible to think about because when you're in that point of transition, it's like, I got a mortgage to pay. I got tuition. I got food I got to buy. So you can't even imagine in that moment, like, wow, this is really going to be a blessing. But that was part of what I was doing. <laughs> right. And, and then, um, when it happened to me, like when I was on the receiving end of it, it gave it a whole new framing. Like I'll never forget the day that Scott died. I was at the hospital with him. His his breathing got really like measured and just deep. He was almost like panting. And by then he had suffered for six weeks. He had a, a heart attack, an anoxic brain injury. He couldn't speak anymore. He had gone from almost 200 pounds to 130 pounds. I mean, he was just wasting away. And, you know, I really felt like at that moment, like when he was about to, like, I knew he was dying. And, you know, I was talking to him, I was holding his hand. I was like, okay, it's, you know, like I, I, I need to, I need to be ready to let go of you so that you don't have to suffer anymore. And the nurse came in and she says to me, you know, like, um, uh, I'll get the, I'll get the cart. And I said, no, we're not going to put him on life support. We're going to let him go. We're just going to let him go. And cause I had just watched him suffer. And then she says, well, I, I have something I can give him to speed it along. I said, no, you're not going to do anything. We're just going to let his creator, take him back home. And so after he passed, then I was sitting there, I'm going, okay. And I literally was talking out loud to him. Um, and I know they thought I was just nuts. They're like, well, you want me to call somebody? I'm like, uh, a bartender. Cause I need, a, <laughs> I need a shot of bourbon right now. <laughs> so they leave me there and I start talking to Scott. I'm like, what am I going to say? What am I going to tell Sage? You know, Sage was 10 years old at the time. You know, like, what am I, I going to do next, Scott? Like, we had all these plans. Like, 
you know, like, I don't even know what I'm going to do next. So then, um, you know, he didn't talk to me, obviously, but I just felt this, this <laughs> like message coming, like, Sonia, you do this. Like you, like two weeks before that I was giving cli- uh, these executive clients advice. I was telling them, look, no, this change isn't good. No, this change doesn't feel right for people, but you have to show them confidence that you got this and no, you don't know exactly what's next and no, you don't know like where we go from here right now, but you'll figure it out and you're going to figure it out together and you're going to keep people engaged. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. I know, I know that that's a concept that I teach. I, I, I coach them so I can do that. Right. And I also, you know, heard my own voice telling these executives like, you know, but you got to let them grieve. You got to let them have the pain. You got to let them get it out. So let them, let them, you know, like release it. They've got to process it. So when I got home, you know, I was like, I was like, replaying my own coaching that I had given to these executives to myself because I was the leader of the family. My job was to lead them through the transition. So I had to go in there like, okay, I got this, you know? So I told Sage, I said, look, um, he said, you know, how's dad today? And I said, you know, sit down, we need to talk. Um, he, he passed away. And, you know, at that moment, of course he, broke into tears. He's like, no, that can't be like, my dad can't be dead. Like, you know, like that was his guy. They were so close. And because I was traveling 90% for my job for six years, like I didn't have a relationship with my 10 year old. So, you know, but I, I said, okay. Wow. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Part. Cause Scott was the, the stay at home guy. Right. So, so then I told Sage, I said, look, here's, here's the thing. Um, we're going to be okay. You know, I, we're not going to, n- not much about our life except for dad's not going to be here anymore is going to change. Like I got this, you know, I have a good job. I, you know, like we can do this and I don't know exactly what we're going to do, you know, longer term, but you know, we, tonight we can do whatever you want. Like I got two tickets to go see the Atlanta dream play basketball. If you want, I'll get a limo. We can go down there, you know, like we can, but I said, I haven't told anybody else. So, you know, I can go upstairs and tell, cause Taisha was there. Um, Taisha and Alonzo, uh, my other kids, I said, you can go upstairs. I said, I can go and tell them, uh, unless you want to. And that was the point when Sage wiped the tears and he put it, I mean, like literally I watched him just get erect at you know, like his shoulders are back. He's standing straight up and he's like, I'll tell them mom. And he went upstairs and told his siblings that, that his dad died. Uh But what that did for him was gave him a tremendous sense of, of power and control over a situation that he had no control over, you know, it was like, and and so one of the things that I really learned about transition is that you have to figure out like what are the things that are in your locus of control and figure out how do you put your energy into the things that you can control especially when highly adverse things happen that are you know so much out of uh your sphere of influence so that was you know when i learned about these techniques and then what i did is 
eventually, I had the good fortune of having one of my good friends, Charlotte, whose husband had died in a car accident five years prior. And she was also 44 when her husband died. And so as a new widow, she was actually coaching me on what it meant to be a widow. How do you navigate widowhood? How do you, um, you know, what's the next step? When is it okay to start dating again? You know, like all of these questions that you have, like who's going to be the right person? You don't get a manual for that sort of thing. You don't, you don't. And one of the things she said to me that was so powerful when I first started dating about a year after Scott died was, you know, like the first one is not going to be the one, but just enjoy it because people come in your life for a reason and sometimes just for a season. So, you know, you have to, you know, stop your mind from trying to look for the replacement because you're not going to find them. Everybody is different. But have just yeah. having and that's when I realized that people need a I call it like a sherpa. Right? A sherpa is a person who's a guide, a navigator who can help you to you've you've gone on international trips. Didn't you go to Nepal or something like that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Indonesia. Okay. So when you're in Indonesia, you want an Indonesian to, to show you around where to eat, where to sleep, where you should go, where it's safe. That's the whole thing about being a transitions coach is that when you are in unfamiliar circumstances, when you're faced with something you've never faced before, it helps to have somebody who has had similar experiences who can help ask the questions so that you can find those answers. And so I had Charlotte as my Sherpa through through new widowhood. And then what I did was actually volunteered at my church to be a mentor through our care ministry and went through a training called Restore. And I started coaching and mentoring new widows and widowers. And I, it was so rewarding because like, this one guy, his wife died. They had a brand new baby. She did, she died of a massive heart attack two weeks after their baby was born. And he had a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And the baby was critically ill. And he was like, he called, you know, I was talking to him on the phone. He's like, they're going back to school today. I don't even know how to prepare a lunch. Like my wife always prepared the lunch. I said, okay, you got bread? Yep. You got peanut butter? Yep. You got jelly? Yep. Okay. Take some peanut butter and jelly. Put it in between those two pieces of bread. Put them together. You got an apple. You got a piece of fruit. Like just helping him prepare their lunch the first time that they went to school, you know, and and then and to stay stay with him through that. And unfortunately, the baby died five months later. So he lost the wife and the baby and was all by himself. And then trying to figure out, like, what do I do with this four-year-old and seven-year-old? And he was now a single parent from another country uh, on top of it. And, you know, so being able to help him and work with him. And then I met another woman whose husband committed suicide uh, in front of their one-year-old and three-year-old. Um, and she was like in this place, she's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm totally lost. Like, I don't know. And being able to just talk her through now she got married again and she's, you know, she's found joy. So 
Yeah, that's a long answer to your very simple question about how did you get into it. But <laughs> no, I love it. Well, so in real estate, I see a lot of women get into real estate after kids start going back to school and they're, you know, I want to get back into the workforce for, you know, newly divorced, trying to get out of a marriage that they don't love. I see a lot of transition with women. So like, what are some tips that we could share with some of our listeners that might be in that transitional phase of life? And they really are like, what? Sonia, I'm so glad I popped onto this podcast. What yeah. what can I yeah. do? So there, there's three three things that I think are the most important strategies for navigating any transition. The first one is that we've got to manage our fear and our worries. And when we are experiencing either contemplating making a change that we know we need to make, you know, even changes that we take control of and we say, I'm going to leave this marriage that is you know, I'm not happy in, or this job that I hate. Making that decision for change, it can be a scary thing to decide to do something brand new. And especially, you know, in an industry like real estate, where you know that there's fluctuations, you know that there's not a lot of concrete certainty. There's no guaranteed paycheck. That's right. It's, <laughs> but, but here's the thing is that you yeah. have the power to put as much into it as you you want to, right? So the, that idea around managing fear and worry. So I have this strategy. I call it putting your worries into buckets. And literally I do this. I take three buckets and I have one bucket for the worries that I have no control over, okay? So there are stuff that we worry about, like what's going to happen with the real estate market. I you can't control what happens to the real estate market. You can't control what happens to the economy. It's going to happen. So worrying about it and spending a lot of energy on it is actually not productive. But the question is then, in a market fluctuation, what do you have partial or total control over? So those are the other two buckets. So thinking about taking our worries and putting them, dispositioning them into the things that we have no control over, what we have partial control over, and what we have total control over. And if we have partial control over it, then we figure out, okay, what piece can I control? What can I influence? That will put me into action. Instead of ruminating about things that I can't control is like, what do I have partial or total control over? And I find this really helpful strategy as a parent because you know, when your kids are babies, you have, you have control over them, but you can't control when they start crying, when they stop crying. I mean, you can try to influence that. You have partial control over it. But then when they get to be teenagers, like control is a complete illusion. <laughs> so all you can, and, and here's the thing about being a, a lot of moms, uh, and, and even if you're not a mom, you know, uh, and, and I think men and women equally do this. Men don't verbalize it as much. I don't think is that we do what I call awfulizing is that we automatically think about the worst thing that could happen because that is our fear talking to us. And there's this part of our brain, it's called the amygdala. It's our fight or flight response. And what we have to do is move from the amygdala, which is our primitive brain. They call it the monkey brain because it's just like our reactionary brain. It is, it is actually given to us as a gift to help us be able to get out of danger, to protect ourselves. 
but sometimes that can hijack and it consumes us. And so that fight or flight response can either paralyze us, right? So we may not make the move to go into real estate when we know that that, you know, when we engage the frontal cortex of our brain, which is the logic and reasoning, then that can help us actually think rationally about it and not make that decision based on fear or worry. So it's managing worries and putting them into these dispositions, but also quieting our mind, right? There's a lot of chatter that goes on in our mind. And this is a second strategy, which is, I call it sort of this continuum of self-compassion. We are so hard on ourselves. We are our own worst critic. And so oftentimes when we're faced with a transition, making a decision, especially going out on our own, we start playing these tapes. And sometimes it's this algorithm that's been programmed into our brain over the years, this conditioning that says, I can't, I shouldn't, I won't, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not energetic enough, people won't like me, like all this doubt that we have that's going on in these conversations in our head are really, I think about this continuum of self-compassion. On one end of the continuum is compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is caring enough about the suffering in in the case of compassion for others that you want to alleviate it. Self-compassion is that we care enough about ourselves that we want to alleviate any suffering that we're having. And suffering happens in our mind, not just physically, right? On the other end of that continuum is abuse. And we are oftentimes abusive to ourselves. We inflict harm on ourselves psychologically by these things that we say to ourselves that we would never say to our best friend or somebody that we care about. So we've got to care enough. We've got to care as much about ourselves as we do others. And and that starts with self-compassion. So how do you do that? Like, what's the practical application of that? So one technique is that we have to be really aware of what's going on in our minds. This is about this intentionality. I use meditation. There's a beautiful um, meditation leader. Her name is Tara Brock. I found her on the the um, the this app. Uh, what's that called? Um, oh my God, I can't remember the name of the app right now. Uh, Calm, the Calm app. Uh, and she, Calm. Calm. That's what yeah, I was Calm. It's that one. Yeah. She did a. She did this. Uh, it was a podcast. Tara Brock, and it's called Rain. It's the Rain technique that she teaches, and I found that so helpful. But what she teaches is you got to recognize, pay attention to what's going on in your mind when you're beating yourself up, when you're giving yourself negative messages. Is go. Okay, time out. Mean girl in there, in that head. Quiet yourself. Shut your (laughs) mouth. Shut your mouth. That ain't me. Like, who are you talking to? Like, you know, like you got, you have to be an anti-bully for yourself. With yourself. Because sometimes the only, you know, you got a mean girl in your head who's only mean to one person. And that's you. You know? And I do. So you have to go. So It's so true. I do it too. We all do. We all do. We all do. And so we have to go, okay, time out. Where, Where is this coming from? Why are you saying those things? Why are you such a, you know, bee to yourself? You know, like... Uh-uh, I'm not going to let you do that. You're not going to do that to me because I care about myself. 
you know, uh, and then go, wait a minute. Okay. Where's that coming from? Oh, that's because, you know, those bullies or that person or my sister or my nephew or my cousin, you know, they told me that they fed me this crap and I'm bought into it, but that's just what it is. Cause that ain't me. Cause I'm strong. I'm capable. I'm bold. You know, I always said that my journey is kind of like the story of the ugly duckling, the swan, you know, who always felt like the bird in the wrong nest with the wrong brood of, of other birds because I was different, you know, but it wasn't until I, I questioned, challenged and squashed that negative conditioning that I was able to move past it. Okay. So that's the second one, self-compassion. The third one here is another thing is so important is self-care, especially women, especially women who are accustomed to taking care of other people. And I don't care if it's your parents or your neighbors or your pets or your, you know, significant others or whatever, you know, when we are accustomed to being a caregiver, usually the last person on our priority list is ourselves. And what happens when we do that is that we become so depleted and defeated. Our cup runs empty. It's kind of like, you know, you ever drive your car and all of a sudden you see the little orange light come on and the, you know, the E for excitement and you go and, and it starts sputtering, right? You can't perform at your best when you're empty. And so self-care, I, I, I love using this right. acronym, it's called HALT. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you have to stop and refuel, right? And I'm talking about hungry physically because sometimes, you know, we'll starve ourselves. We'll go all day and not eat, and then we'll eat garbage when we finally get a chance, you know, to, to take a rest. So self-care is things like packing a healthy snack to have available to yourself throughout the day. We make lunch for other people. We prepare dinner for other people, but do we nourish ourselves, right? So that's a simple thing. You don't think about eating as self-care, but eating right and eating regularly is self-care. Managing our anger, that's self-care too. So how do we get our anger out? Like, you know, just taking a walk, you know, get get moving, We, you know, like, I don't like to exercise. I don't work out. I don't jog or anything like that. But I try to at least, you know, like walk down to the lake and back a couple times a day to just kind of keep keep your body moving. You have to be able to do that. Social support, you know, like when you get lonely is connecting with and we don't have to have a lot of followers or likes. That is actually the wrong, you know, using social media as our social support system is actually a very distorted way of viewing social support. It can be one person that has our best interest at heart. Brene Brown, who is a, a, a beautiful thought leader around uh, vulnerability and shame. If you've ever heard of her, you can Google her, her Ted talk. I love Brene her. Brown. Love yeah. her. So she says that we should, we should oh. put the people that we share our stories with on a one inch by one inch piece of paper and be able to write all the names of the people that we have in our inner circle. Because here's the thing, it's not about quantity. It's not about having a large number of people in your life. Those are acquaintances. But a social supporter, really a very small group of trusted people who you know have your best interest at heart. 
They're not the haters. They're not jealous, you know, and that is part of self-care is actually connecting with people that you care about, like how you and I are connecting right now. And then another part of self-care is, is making sure we're not tired, rest, sleeping. We got to get, we've got to make sure that we get enough sleep or we can't charge and, you know, you can't, you can't function at your top performance when, when you're, when you're exhausted. Yeah. So self-care and play and having fun and dancing. And, you know, if you got to clean the house, like put on some good music and shake your booty, you got to have fun. Like life is too short to just, (laughs) you know, be in drudgery. And especially when we feel overwhelmed or stressed out or like there's so much stuff. And another thing of self-care that I think is so important is setting boundaries. I have this exercise that I have my clients do. I have them look back at the, uh, at the time that you spend over the course of a week and put it into to four columns on a sheet of paper. You could do this actually at the end of your day on a journal. So what did I do that I want to do? Like these are the things that feed your spirit. What are the things, how did I spend my time where I had to? Like, my, like, like I had to because I got to pay my bills, right? And then the third column is like other people's stuff, you know? And time is like one of those commodities that you never get back, right? This this moment you and I are having right now, we will never have this moment again. 11.35 on April the 10th is like this, it is right now. So some of self-care is like, what do we do with our now? And when we put so much of that hot commodity, that, that unrenewable commodity of time, which can and will actually yield huge dividends later. If you think about it like an economic investment, is that when we invest our time in things that actually will blossom and create brilliance in our lives later, that's where we should be spending our time. But too often we put our time into things that other people obligate us to do. They're crap. You know, it's not even fun. It's not. We do it all the time. It's not good for us. And it doesn't do anything for our long-term growth and development. So self-care is also about setting boundaries and spending time doing things that bring us joy, whether it's shooting pool or, you know, taking a nap or, you know, those kinds of things are so important. I love this quote that I heard. It said, self-care is not about salt baths and eating chocolate cake. It's about creating a life that you don't feel like you have to escape from. You know, like I, I was, I was, uh, have you read the top of my Instagram page? No, that is the, that is what's on my Instagram page is creating a life. I don't want to take a vacation from. Oh my God. That is so perfect. You didn't even know no, that. I did, did not. <laughs> no, I did not. That's amazing. That's really amazing. So I think, you know, it's just like we, we, I, I, uh, my motto is growing through what we're going through. Is like everything, every adversity, every challenge, every change, every uncertainty is an opportunity for us to grow. Uh, and the question is, will we seize that opportunity or will we waste it? And it's up to us. And we have total control about how we, how we respond. It's so amazing. I think our viewers are going to like love to hear this episode. 
because everything that you hit on, I'm sitting there when you're talking, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's me. Yes, that's me. No, I don't pack a healthy lunch. No, I don't take time for me. No, I put other people's priorities way above my own. So I, I know it resonated with me. So I know other women are going to totally find our conversation today super valuable. And I'm so glad that you jumped on this podcast with me today. This was so much fun. We need to talk more often. Like we need to make this a regular thing. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I'm going to show you something. Just uh, so thinking about your Instagram page, right? So when I think about kind of everything, all of the the phases of the journey, you know, the legs of the journey is being able to kind of know that you come to a place where, you know, you can actually just live this life right here, uh. you know? So Sonia and I are on video while we're doing this, while we're recording this podcast, she and I are also on video. It's kind of like we're doing a Zoom episode and she bought a lake home and it looks like paradise. She's standing out on her back deck with the camera overlooking the lake and I'm hashtag jealous right now. <laughs> I am I am literally, my vocation and my vacation have become the same thing. I love that. I love how you've completely mastercrafted your life. It's amazing. Well, I give uh, I have to give credit to uh, to my creator as well because I do believe that um, you know he or she has had a hand uh, in it, and uh, I've just been open to receive it. So, well, Sonia, where can people find you? They can find me at www.whatcouldyoube.com. What could you be.com. And that's, uh, that's my website for my private practice, Life Shift LLC. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here today and uh, reach out to Sonia to learn more about the powerful work that she's doing. And thank you again for being here. Thank you. This has been fun. It's great to see Yay. you, hear you, spend time with you. Thank you. Wow, girls. Sonia just packed in this show with so much awesome information. I hope you can take away some actionable items that you can implement in your life today to move you powerfully through your next life transition. Uh, Until next time, girls, remember to keep your face off a bus bench and keep being the badass boss babe that you are. Okay, girls, are you feeling as inspired as we are? We're over here cheering you on because you just finished another episode of the Girl, Get Your Face Off a Bus Bench podcast. If you want more, head over to girlgetyourfaceoffabusbench.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. They mean the world to us and they're what keep us going. Girl, thanks for being here.